0: hey everybody welcome to why it matters the podcast for the dreamers and the driven we're changing the world their way dave chen is dedicated to creating a more sustainable future an enormous part of that future is dependent on changing the operating system of society on a systemic level part of that change is dependent on entrepreneurs and great thinkers to formulate the solutions that will push us forward. Those individuals, however, need resources behind them to scale their creations on a local, national, and global scale. That is where Dave and his team at Equilibrium Capital play. By investing in and allocating capital to scale sustainable solutions, they are the ones truly driving systemic change. Before we listen to his story, Everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live. Dave Chen, welcome to Why It Matters.
1: Thank you, I'm excited for this conversation. You, The uh, the uh, the questions you sent me were some of the most interesting questions I've had in uh, in an interview uh, to
0: date, so I'm really looking forward to it. Me too, I appreciate that. Um, and excited to get into the weeds. And before we do, I'd like to start off the episodes with a little bit about the guests, understand who they are so the audience can relate. Um, and so who is Dave and what gives you purpose?
1: Uh, well, uh, I think there are a number of things that are defining about me. I think the immigrant experience is defining, uh, I'm Taiwanese, uh, born, uh, and came to this country at a very young age, uh, following my father. Uh, my mom and i came together but we followed my father four years after he came to this country to get his master's degree And and in a lot of ways we had a very typical um, uh, immigrant experience growing up um, i think it gives you a certain amount of of um, uh, non-entitlement because you feel like as an immigrant you're not entitled to much and so you tend to be um humble and grateful uh but because you're asian you think about work as the mainstay of your life and education as a foundation so in that sense i had a very typical growing up um i was asked by my son when he was in his i think first grade class interview your dad uh you know what animal was i and i i told him the ox uh you uh you uh you pull in good days and through the mud, and you just keep going. And I think that's a defining characteristic. Uh, What gives me purpose? Um, I think that if I look out across my entire life, um, I've always been drawn to the things that needed to get done, but that weren't easy. Uh, I've always been drawn to entrepreneurs that were the underdogs. Uh, I've always been drawn to situations like that. And in 2006, I was just leaving a decade in venture capital as a partner in a firm, Uh, you know, frankly, a pretty cushy life uh, and a long career in high tech. And I had been getting to know a number of entrepreneurs and business leaders that uh, were in the early days of developing and building businesses around sustainability. And I admired the sense of uh, duality that they brought to it. One was uh, an intense sense of doing something that needed to get done, something that uh, whether it was um, preserving our natural resources, uh, turning around uh, bad situations or creating entirely new, quote unquote, green economy things. There was a sense of doing something uh, important money and wealth was not usually the first thing that they talked about but 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 uh, but they were all very very good business people and i saw them building these very significant enterprises that performed extraordinarily well compared to their competitors and yet were deeply driven in purpose it reminded me of the early days the 1980s in high tech and uh and i decided, this is what I want to do for the last phase of my career is build an investment firm around sustainability and trying to uh, use the financial markets to um, uh, build Archimedes lever, which is the old thing where Archimedes said, if you give me a lever big enough, I can move the earth. Well, if we can deploy the financial Uh, tools and the capital markets then uh, we can build a lever big enough to alter the course of many of the things that we are facing as challenges
0: I'm very excited to get into that lever comment a bit later in the episode but I think first I'm gonna go back to a little bit more about the story you first told about being an immigrant um, and how that has been that experience at a young, age. how old were you when you came over
1: four years old?
0: Four. Wow. Okay. So very young. Um, and as I did this research for this episode, I've realized that you, you've done a range of things in your career. Um, and I think that for someone who's done a range of things, that means you have to make a lot of hard decisions about what you're going to do next and why you're going to do it. And so I would love to hear about how you being an immigrant at a young age and you having a career that has been very diverse is been formed by your decisions and how you make decisions. So how do you make decisions? How do you weigh information and how has that been formed by your experience being an immigrant?
1: I I think there's two threads to unpack there. One is I think as an immigrant, um, you don't have much to lose. So, everything is new. Um, everything and the beauty of the United States, and I think in the last years, I think we've lost some of this appreciation. I, 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 I say this, you know, I, I, I don't wear an American flag on my jacket, but I, I believe that this country is still a great country for 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 opportunity and i think as an immigrant because you start with very little i mean my dad was literally the uh the guy that arrived with two hundred dollars in his pocket and because of the kind of person he was he didn't like to have borrowed money in his pocket so he returned two hundred dollars back to his uncle who he borrowed it from and uh you know literally came here you know and uh as a as a as a, as a uh, impoverished grad student, getting ready to get his master's at UW and, um, and then started working, took a job, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that fear of um, uh, having nothing, uh, willingness to start, uh, it's not that you're confident in yourself, it's the feeling that you don't have a choice, <laughs> all right? And I think there's a huge difference. It's yeah. not that I believe that I can do anything. It's the fact that, well, sort of shit out of luck, you know, I, I go <laughs> get it and make it happen. And I think that that's been a real guiding uh, part of, of, of what I took out of that, all right? And then because the other thread that you have to unpack is because, you know, you have an Asian background, um, there's just this emphasis on education and smarts and, and the intellectual machine. And so that, that aspect of it says, well, look, um, uh, if I don't know it, I can learn it and, uh, and, and I have the capacity to learn. And so when you combine that sense of, I have nothing to lose and I have the capacity to learn, uh, I, I think that's been a really important part of, of that experience. And that set of tools has taken me pretty far. You know, and, and, and that took me into my first uh, job uh uh uh, which was actually when i was 18 years old and 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 at at university of california berkeley i needed a winter job you know and i and uh and i asked after the winter break was over if i could stay at the job and keep working and because i was willing to do just about anything uh and they could throw any project at me you know I, i i i stayed there because it was fun it was i got to learn i got to be put under pressure and uh, and so that's that's been a huge sort of first attribute. At McKinsey, when I graduated from business school, you know, that was the next step and that was the most important thing I took out of McKinsey was, how do you really get to know an industry fast? And they taught you this incredibly important set of skills uh, on how to use your intellectual capacity to, to frame and, and 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 frame the 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 analytics the research the questions so that you could get smart on a sector quickly so i've been very fortunate in having both a way of growing up but then attaching it to tools and experiences that 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 that, that, that harnessed it decision making i think i have to be very honest um, my decision making in the Business context has almost always been like many other people, like many people. Partly um, the use of data, frameworks, analytics, and partly understanding the human behavior and the and the human animal and how how the decision has to be balanced and framed in those contexts. I would say that most of my personal decisions have been not very analytic and really based on people. Did I believe in the person? Did I want to support the person? Did I want to be with them? And so, you know, I, I find that my, in my personal life, I have a very different way of approaching decisions than, than than in my business
0: life. Just listening to that, it seems like a lot of it has to do with the, one of the things you mentioned, which is the, the capacity to learn. Um, yeah. And so I would love to hear about how you develop that. And I think for, for me and myself, my grandfather was an immigrant um, at similar story, six years old came over. Um, and so I have that somewhat in my blood. And I think that I've developed a, a desire for learning and an ability for learning because of that. It's kind of in my genes, but also like just having the hunger to learn and want to learn. So like, what was it for you that maybe along with having that just, thing in Saudi like i had, i just have i have to do this like i have to get it done and because of that need to learn um, but what was complementary to that like how did you how did you learn to learn if that makes sense in like yeah. yeah i guess i can leave it at that
1: um learning is 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 in some ways um you know look there's because we're curious people and we want to know things there's There's curiosity to want to examine a whole bunch of new things and and the intellectual horsepower to be able to do that, et cetera, et cetera. But but within the context of your professional life, I I think learning is uh, in some ways a form of humility, right? Because it says, I don't know everything. And the confidence aspect of it says, but I have the capacity to learn it, and will I be willing to uh, have a strong enough ego to be able to learn from those that know more? Uh, and and uh, and you know these issues are critically important because we have a lot of glib glib terms that we use like connect the dots, think out of the box, things like that. And if you unpack those two terms, if you don't have data and insights and facts and trends, and if you don't have collision of ideas, it's hard to think out of the box. Um, You know, they always say that the greatest ideas come from the, 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 uh, the fault lines or the intersection lines of tectonic plates or of marketplaces or of demographics, that it's the borders that create the greatest amount of tension and learning. Well, if you're not willing to learn, How do you see those if you're not willing to learn and admit that you don't know, then how do you connect the dots? Right. How do you get the data to have the dots to connect? Right. And, 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 and how do you see the tectonic plates? If you're not always asking questions, but then I think there's another trick to it, which is there are people that just learn, and don't understand that 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 learning is also about applying. So, are you learning with the intent of applying it, or is it just that you have this massive, you know, encyclopedia that you're building inside your head? And and there's nothing wrong with that. But 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 for me, learning has always been about problem solving. It's always been about trying to gain insight. Um, and it's and like I said, it's the humility. Um, that I am confident in my capability, but I don't know this and I need to know this. And I think that that those characteristics allow you to be, um, to cover more ground, um, to incorporate teams into what you do. It allows you to hear uh, opposing views and opposing pieces of data um and in today's world um i don't know how you survive w- with without those skills
0: definitely i i 100 agree i think i love the term you used strong ego because i think there's a really big negative connotation around ego but at the end of the day ego is just kind of our our drive to survive and some people use it in a way that's like negative to them and to other people but if you use it as a way of almost like accepting yourself and who you are. And just like you said, having that humility to turn around and be like, Hey, I'm, I'm just out here. I want to learn. And someone actually once told me when he said that, that the smartest people in the room, whenever they're around them, they're always asking the dumbest questions. And it's kind of just like a reflection of that idea is just, Hey, I'm going to be vulnerable and just be who I am at this moment. So I can become a different version of myself down the line by asking the right questions. Um, So I love that and appreciate that. I'd love to transition to what you're doing now, which is running this awesome organization called Equilibrium Capital. And so for some context, why did you choose the name? Okay. And what did you see back in 2008 that led you to starting it? Okay.
1: I want to touch on your last point before I yeah. move on to that question. I, I would just invite your listeners and yourself to peel apart the difference between a strong ego and a big ego. I think there's a world of difference and, and, uh, and I think it has everything to do with the nuances that you articulated, uh, just a few minutes ago, but, but, but think about those two words and how different they are. All right. Okay, so for those that are listening that have a little bit of science in their background, the word equilibrium is about forces that are uh, coming to balance, but it is not the same as the word balance, all right? Equilibrium uh, uh, is by definition, the dynamic set of forces that create a balance point that may not be there for a long period of time. So equilibrium is always moving. And it is a function of the forces that are tugging at things in simultaneously and in real time. And so when we decided that there was a significant opportunity to stand on the shoulders of the giants that we had learned from people like Ray Anderson, which coincidentally uh, ray was one of the the giants of sustainable businesses he passed away a few years ago but he created a company called interface which was a good old boy southern carpet company when he uh, took it on and he created it into one of the great biomimicry sustainable practices recycling companies of i think all time and there's a movie that's gonna be coming out, a documentary about him, uh, uh, I think in a few weeks uh, that uh, I would invite folks to, 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 to go watch. So when we were getting ready to, to, to launch this, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could harness um, the tools of finance and the basics of investments uh, and, and find ways of harnessing the capital markets Uh, in areas where sustainability could become and was a uh, competitive advantage and uh, uh, where, uh, because sustainability in 2008 was grossly misunderstood and was viewed in the words responsible, advocacy, uh, Al Gore, tree-hugging, inconvenient truth, uh, and it wasn't viewed as a hard economic term, if that's the case then we can see value where others don't because right now they think it's a bit of a joke in a and a conceptual frame we would see that that all those folks like ray anderson before us saw those in hard economic terms of efficiency of productivity of end user demand of of uh better utilization of resources and those are all words that have to do with revenue. And those, those are all words that have to do with um, um, uh, operational expenses and operational efficiency. Well, if we can see this in certain sectors where sustainability could become a competitive advantage, then that is the basis of a, of a, of a, of a investment thesis and we should go do that. But because sustainability is a systems issue, nothing stands still. And by improving something or degrading something that in and of itself changes the system. Wow. So balance is not like this uh, balance uh, of, of scales where it's just sort of stays there. De- the, the equilibrium itself is dynamic and it's moving. So if we believe that, that that that's the heart of sustainability and that these are these are intersection systems, then this is a great name equilibrium because it's not permanent it's always changing and therefore as an investor it's always important to stay on top of the market stay on top of the changes that are taking place understand what the levers are that 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 that, that make a difference so this is the perfect name and uh that's how we that's how we got it and uh, in fact our first logo very amateurish logo uh, was that of a set of intersecting waves and, and, and because there is an equilibrium, but it's not permanent and it's always moving. And, uh, and later when we got, uh, when we could pay for it. We actually had a great, uh, designer designer logo, which is the one we've had. Well, probably a decade now or more. And, and, and it does have that continuity of the waves and of the intersection points.
0: Got you. Okay. And so with that kind of the insight you had, how there's this misunderstanding, um, could you talk about how you had that misunderstanding and then you developed an investment thesis and strategy around that? And then specifically, could you touch on your version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Because I think that's really interesting in the way you describe it. So um, we thought a lot about the folks that we
1: got to learn from before we started the company and the businesses that they were that they were executing, and uh, and we came to this conclusion that sustainability and if you took the other angle on it, which is climate change, and increasingly, um, you know, the whole social equality aspect of it as well, that. Um, These were all going to, many of the industries that were gonna be most significantly impacted by these trends were the Maslow hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, energy. And, And if we could see advantages in sustainable practices or sustainable driven technology advantages or end user product advantages, in those food, water, shelter, clothing, then these would be the industries that were number one, massive, uh, in general, oftentimes fragmented. And many of them had not yet been targeted by institutional investment. And so in many ways they were undermanaged, multi-trillion dollar markets that hadn't seen a lot of institutional capital, where information, was not uh, very well available or very well understood. And so as an investor, you could either run scared from that, or you could run into it because that spells market inefficiency. And market inefficiency uh, is mispriced information. It's mispriced assets. I jokingly say that it's the oldest uh, Goldman Sachs uh, strategy, which is I see value where others don't, comma, and I'm willing to take a bet on it.
0: Okay, um, I think what would be helpful for listeners is to understand what you guys to what you guys do in terms of the function of equilibrium. So mm-hmm. there's like startups and. People that are like starting the companies maybe to improve a food system or something to do with clean energy. And you guys are on a different part of being a, a problem solver than you provide capital. So could you just give a little description yeah. of being like an institutional investor and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that that if I use our high level elevator pitch, we are uh, uh, an investment management firm that focuses on uh, sustainability-driven strategies uh, in the real assets and uh, infrastructure categories focused on food and agriculture and uh, the circular economy areas for institutional investors. It's a very long sentence and, and I'll unpack that Um, one of the early insights and this gets back to archimedes lever is that if we're really going to solve and people love using these kinds of words planetary scale problems the ice caps are melting and uh and uh the co2 level is a global problem because it's in the atmosphere and must be solved you know uh at 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 a shared resource and global level well And I'm not making fun of that. If you unpack all those words, um, infrastructure is going to be a major part of the solution. So, you know, we'll see business plans where uh, someone will be, uh, some entrepreneur will be talking about the fact that they have unlocked the secrets of vegetable protein and this will, and in their pitch deck is always the words, billions of consumers, right? And and nowhere in their pitch deck have they actually done the math to figure out, given their secret sauce, how many thousands of factories are gonna have to get built. Because the thing that you have to remember is food, unlike social networking, is not digital, okay? It's a physical goods. So it has to come squirting out, pounded out, mushed out, and then it has to end up in a truck somewhere, right? and to feed billions of people is going to take a lot of trucks and a lot of factories. And if we're going to do carbon sequestration and, uh, and suck the CO2 uh, and uh, well, how many thousands of CO2 sucking machines are we gonna have to have? Okay. And, and, um, and so we came to the conclusion that, that, wow, if we wanna make a difference, yeah, yeah, we can go back into venture capital. and We can find the uh, the entrepreneur with the cool idea. But because almost everything that touches sustainability or climate change is something physical. All right. That means that we're going to do this at massive scale. I mean, massive. All right. Um, and and it, it's not likely to be one big old factory, you know, sitting somewhere in the middle of the, of, of the United States. It's going to be thousands dotting the, the, the world. All right. And, and so we said, oh, this is an infrastructure opportunity. Wow, okay, well, that's a different asset category. And no one is touching sustainable infrastructure. And they don't even know what the hell that means. This is 2010 when we really, really got a head of steam behind us. And so, hey, real assets is gonna be a massive category. We're gonna deploy capital in the trillions of dollars. All right? and it's gonna be, it'll be the next generation's bridges and highways and energy resources. It's just, you know, we, we build highways at an enormous scale. All right. So, 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 so we said infrastructure, real assets, scaling, repeatability. Um, wow, huge amounts of need in food and agriculture, and huge amounts of needs in renewable natural gas in uh the converting of our massive amounts of human waste streams plastic bottles uh throwaway paper uh, uh the the celery that uh and the tomatoes that end up in your refrigerator that you throw out all right uh these are massive massive scaled issues and uh and so that's how we ended up with with that uh, uh food and ag circular economy these are going to be hugely important in solving both um, sustainable use of our land resources, sustainable use of our uh, water resources, uh, sustainable use of human resources, and then they are huge contributors to greenhouse gas. Okay, this is a problem worth solving and it's got got to get done at massive scale. And the only capital that we can think of at the time that could be deployed against that, um, and this is the early days of very, progressively minded, you know, high net worth individuals and, and things like that, uh, investors like that, but they weren't actually deploying a lot of capital. And so we looked at, can institutional capital be brought into this conversation? You know, Institutional capital, I mean, some of the largest pension plans in, in the world are $250 billion, half a trillion dollars. Some of the largest pools of actively managed capital around the world are in the trillion dollar category. The large sovereign wealth funds it's not unusual for insurance companies to have greater than a trillion dollars in their uh, balance sheet which is the premiums that they have to keep uh, protected and invested on behalf of their life insurance clients and so he said those are the forms of capital that have a risk appetite and a opportunity appetite for very large blocks of, of opportunities that have long-term trend requirements. I mean sustainability and climate's going to be with us well, for the rest of our lives. And so, so the opportunity is there. The ability to deploy and manage for the long term, big blocks of capital in big, chunky assets, that's how we came to our strategy, and that's what we do. So we're among the largest um, uh, deployers of institutional capital into sustainable agriculture. Uh, We are among the largest investors in the development of uh, uh, indoor agriculture and greenhouse grown agriculture because we see that as a massive climate adaptation and resiliency in our food system, and we're among the largest uh, producers of renewable natural gas uh, from animal and farm waste in North America, and these are all things that we have long horizons in our ability to scale.
0: That's an amazing description for myself and I think for people listening because I I think that's something that's really, really deeply missed is that the bridges, literally in a metaphorical and a physical aspect of like how this is all going to come together. So I think understanding that there are people like yourself in equilibrium who are doing that is really amazing. I'd love to wrap up with a question about the complexity in which you are working in, which is on your website. Um, you guys discussed how you have to manage the intersection of human, natural, economic, and political systems, which I don't think many people operate in. um, And that forms the field of sustainability. So how do you operate in that area and how do you manage the complexity? Uh, We like,
1: first of all, I, I think we're one of a very small handful of investment management firms that have a true objective to generate uh, market beating returns, alpha, uh, and yet are mission driven and purpose driven. And I have a saying that we like to hire young people who have had all of the romance, and idealism of changing the planet beaten out of them through difficulties and realities and still want to get up in the morning and do it. In some ways, we think that idealism and romantic notions are some of the most dangerous things that we face in this issue of sustainability, because if it was easy, someone would have done it. And it is incredibly complex and it lives at the intersection, as I say often, of economic systems, political systems, natural systems, and then the last and the most intractable that is human behavioral systems. And so if you aren't humble and if you aren't realistic and still want to do this, um, I don't think you can be, I don't think you can make a big difference. I think you can make big headlines, but I don't think you can make big difference because this thing's hard and it's complex and we're gonna make mistakes because if you're honest about it, we're all mucking around, we're all exploring. I, I mean, listen to the, sometimes you know, we'll have sustainability consultants come in to talk to us and the discipline to actually punch below the conceptual words you know, it sometimes isn't there because it's so much more comfortable to say, stay at the headline level, the concept words. Uh, it ain't easy. It, you know, you're going to run into regulatory at some point, you're going to run into the fact that you're goring someone else's business. Uh, uh, people have incentives to survive, and then the natural system, uh, honest to God we really don't understand the natural system very well. We don't actually know that if we pull on this string, this other blob happens, or if we pull on this string, some other thing happens, you know? How many times do you read the horror stories of introducing a hostile species because we're trying to kill some other hostile species, and the result is we have this huge ecological mess? Well, more often than we imagine, but but none of those people were evil intentioned. They did it because they thought they were doing the right thing, but we're messing around with, ecological, natural systems. And then, you know, one of our favorites is, 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 is the human system. And, you know, I'll just share with you just, I think at the heart of it, we're selfish machines. And, and I'm kind of a cynic. And so when people say, oh, I'm doing it for my grandkids, I don't believe them because we've shown time and time again that the human animal is not very good thinking long-term. Very, very few special people can do that. And so I believe people when they say to me, I'm doing this for me, this, is, this, this, this thing is important to me. Got it, I understand that. I'm doing this for my grandkids, man, I don't know how many people really have the courage to change their behavior because they're thinking about their grandkids. So, so when I say that we're at the intersection, it says a lot. It says on how difficult the job is, how humble we have to be to learn from every possible nook and cranny that we can, how willing to admit mistakes are we and still have the confidence to move forward, and, and, and how this is not something to be idealistic about and how this is not something to be romantic about there's just nothing romantic about poverty there's just nothing romantic about some big super site you know cesspool of shit. okay all right and if you look on our website i changed it a few years ago to increasingly put the grimy end of what we do on the website because i didn't want the big beautiful mountain and the big swaying trees and all that you know What we do is ugly. It took us a ton of ugliness to get here. It's going to take a ton of facing the ugliness to get us out of here.
0: I think that's great because the candidness reflects what you're doing, but also the type of people you need to attract in this industry and having people understand that is really important that it's, this is more than, I guess you put it in a great way than than the mountains and the trees flowing in the background. This is real life, you know, serious problems and, and things that we need to attack that's so complex. Um, so I appreciate the candidates in the perspective, because I think it's something that a lot more people need to understand before getting into the industry. And it's something that isn't a bad thing. It's just what it is. And so yeah. accepting that and moving forward is the only way we can go. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. This is a pleasure, a phenomenal conversation. And I look forward to people enjoying the fruits of it. Luke, I wanna just thank you for asking questions that most people don't wanna
1: hear, don't care about, or didn't ask. So I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And so I thank you for that.
0: Appreciate it. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at why it matters and on Instagram at why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners. who are forming the next generation of change makers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see y'all soon.